Well, good morning, church. Uh, we are uh, in the uh, greatest age of uh, information. Or we have every, every fact of history at our fingertips, and yet I want to ask the question, are we wiser for it? Right? We have the capacity to know so much stuff these days, the ability to know much stuff, but are we wise? Because there's a difference. I may know this fact or have that experience or be good at this skill or learn how to do this thing, but am I wise? Because when God looks down from heaven and he looks at people, do you know what he sees? He sees the wise and the unwise. If you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, verse 6 to 16. It's on page 953 of those pew Bibles. And we're going to see how God sees the whole world as either wise or unwise. And it's a kind of a sobering thought. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. If you find that, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in, wi- in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of of Christ. That's the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we can understand the things you have freely given to us in the Spirit. So help us understand and see this passage this morning. Spirit, help us. Amen. You may be seated. Paul has been arguing something to this church at Corinth. 
He's been begging them to be united in Jesus because this church has become divided and they begin to look more like the city outside of the church walls, comparing favorite teachers and philosophers, judging each other. Some of the church at Corinth, as we're going to keep seeing, considers themselves more elite, more mature, better Christians than the rest. And Paul wants to unite them again here in our text, right? As some Christians are trying to compare one another in the same way the world does, you know, by knowledge, status, riches, wisdom, Paul says, no, no, no. All Christians, all of you in Corinth, all of you here in the Chippewa Valley, guess what? You are all united because you all have the same spirit. Any knowledge you have about God is not from you, it's from the Spirit, any skills you use for God's glory, any spiritual gifts you use in the church, guess what? That's not because of you, but that's because God has given you the Holy Spirit. So Paul's trying to level the playing field again, to strike down the walls of division, to unify each other in identity. So he does this right here in our passage by looking at uh, philosophies of the world and says, stop trying to be like the wisdom of the world, because guess what? It's not actually wisdom. But look to the Holy Spirit who is indwelling in you, who's given you everything you need to walk a life of wisdom towards Christ. So why judge each other? Why compare each other? Why be prideful? Why think you are better than another Christian? You have the same Spirit in you. So this is the main point of these verses, and then we're going to look at three points today. Main point is, sorry I don't have any notes for you in the bulletin, you'll have to handwrite. Your hand might cramp, I'm sorry, but... Main point this morning is this, if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you so that you can know Christ and know how to live for Christ. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you so that you can know Christ and know how to live for Christ. When you read through this passage, several words Several groups of words become prominent, right? The word spirit is mentioned a lot. Words like wisdom or understanding become prominent. Paul's trying to communicate to Christians or Holy Spirit people that they are wise, that they are understanding people, that they know the things of God. And this is what makes this rebuke, this correction so strong. Paul says, church, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have knowledge of God. You have a rich identity in God. God is living in your spirit. So why are you acting like the world that doesn't have God in the spirit? Why are you living like you don't have the wise Holy Spirit in you? The other day I was getting ready to leave work here. I couldn't find my phone. And I can't live without my phone like you. Looking through my bag, right? Checking my desk. I'm, I'm checking my pockets, right? And then I realized the embarrassing truth. And maybe you've done this before. I realized my phone was in my hand the entire time. <laughs> right? I had the phone in my hand and I'm running around panicking like, where's my phone? You know, what if that person texts me tonight? I need to respond. You know, we go through all these stupid moments and I'm panicking. This is the church at Corinth, Right? They have the Spirit in them, but they're running around panicking like they don't have the Spirit. They begin to look a lot more like the people outside of the walls who don't have the Spirit, and yet there it is, right there in their hands. So let's begin 
where Paul begins here. The first thing I want you to note is that there are two types of people. This is the first point. There's two types of people. The wise and the unwise. The whole world divided into two groups of people, the wise and the unwise. The other terms that Paul uses are the spiritual and the natural. It means the same thing, wise and unwise. Paul zooms out here and looks at the whole world, splits the whole world into two groups of people, the wise, the unwise, the spiritual, the natural. In our words, the Christian and the non-Christian. But we're going to use Paul's words here for a moment. Look here in verse 14. Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The non-Christian generally sees the Christian worldview, the Christian things as something foolish or something to not trust in. The ways of God are foolishness to those who are perishing, right? In verses six to eight, if you look there, we see a contrast between true wisdom and foolishness. I'm going to read this again. Yet among the mature, we impart wisdom, Although it's not a wisdom, okay? It's air quotes, okay? So we impart wisdom, though it's not a air quote wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, the true wisdom, which God decreed before the ages of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory, who's Jesus. There's two types of wisdom mentioned here. In verse 6, wisdom of the world, which we're going to realize is not actually wisdom. And the true wisdom of God in verse 7. So again, air quotes around verse 6, wisdom. He's saying this, what you call wisdom, is not really wisdom at all. It's unwise. It's foolishness. It's actually going to make you perish. And what we mean overall by wisdom here is one's purpose of existence. One's way of living. There's the world's way of understanding the world and how to live in it. And then there's God's way of understanding the world and how to live in it. Think about it in your life, right? So big existential question. Okay. You probably barely woken up today, but if someone were to ask you, what is your existence? What's the purpose of you living? What's the point of this world and all of history? Why are you here? What are you here for? Whatever your answer is to that question is what wisdom you follow. Your path of life, your values, your priorities, your actions. Is it for, you know, my own selfish pleasure, whatever I want to get out of life, whatever's going to make me happy? Or is it God? Is it for accumulation or knowledge or to be the best, to have a good, fun time? However your life is overall, whatever you live for, that's what your wisdom is. So in verse 6, we see this wisdom of this age. Age is in time period. What is the result of the wisdom of this age in verse 6? It's that those are going to pass away. There's an ultimate shaming here, like Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 27. As you pursue the foolishness of the world, whatever that is, it results in death, in destruction. So we must ask the question, is this the right way to live? Is this true wisdom if you are destined to perish and pass away and be doomed to destruction? But then in verse 7, right, the contrast, Paul says true wisdom. Guess what? It comes from God, and it's God's wisdom, and we have a glorious future 
Do you see in verse 7, oftentimes the Bible talks about the glory of God. What does verse 7 say? God decreed before the ages for whose glory? Our glory. Paul says, if you choose the wise path with Christ, guess what? You are going to have a glorious and bright future. You're not going to be doomed to perish like the ways of wisdom. But with God, you are going to have a future that lasts, that matters. So right away, we see unwise perishing and doom, the wise finding glory in God. But there's more contrast. You see again in verse um, in verse 6. We see that this is a wisdom from the rulers of this age. The rulers refers to the world leaders, the cultural leaders, the influential people, the kings, the princes. Right? In each generation, leaders had their ideas, their philosophies, their, their values. Things that their nations and kingdoms prioritized. They publicly led. And Paul here is talking about rulers, most likely talking about the leaders in Rome, the Roman government, the Caesars. What was Rome all about? Caesar worship, bowing down to whoever Caesar was, pagan gods, art and entertainment, sexual promiscuity. These were some of the things that Rome as a, as a, as a kingdom loved to promote. It was the Roman way. But guess what? In 2022, we only read about the Roman Empire in history books. It's gone. Caesars died. The empire is no longer. They're long gone and dead. In another generation, there's going to be new philosophies, new values, new priorities. But in verse 7, the wisdom of God is not temporary. Guess what it says in verse 7? The secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the what? Before the ages. God's wisdom existed before there was even time. It doesn't just last a generation or an empire or a civilization. It's not like on the bestseller list for just a month and then it's gone. God's wisdom, his plan for all mankind has eternally existed. So what is Caesar to God? God's plan for the world, God's plan for our existence has been on his mind for eternity. His wisdom, his knowledge is never just a trend. When I look at pictures of my parents in the 70s and 80s, I often wonder, what were they thinking? You see the haircuts, you see the sweaters, the clothes, and you wonder, how was that ever cool? But then you get to that point in your life where you start thinking, oh no, what? What am I wearing that in 30 years my kids are going to be like, Dad, what were you doing? Now, I don't want you to answer that, please. All right, things go in and out of style. Vocabulary goes in and out of style. There are trends. Same with the wisdom of this world. It comes and it goes and it changes. And guess what? The fact that it changes means it actually never satisfies. But God, in his wisdom, his plan never changes, it never fails. Whereas the wisdom of the rulers of this age make their plans and their wisdom public, they build their empire around it. It appears that God, in verse 7, makes his plan, but he doesn't really make it public. He doesn't make it a trend, he doesn't make it a hashtag, he actually makes it, it says, hidden. Do you see in verse 7, Paul says, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. 
Sometimes those words translate together as mystery. If you read the book of Ephesians, you're going to see the same thing. It talks about mystery, mystery, mystery. A wisdom of mystery. What does that mean? Because to us, if we're like, hey, if this is good wisdom, let's not hide it. Let's put it out as publicly as we can and get as many people to be wise. So this seems weird to us, but what, what, what secret and hidden and mystery mean in the Bible is this. What it means is something was once hidden, but now it is revealed. It was hidden, but now it's revealed. It's not as if God is trying to be unclear or hide something intentionally. The idea is God planned something, and it took time for it to come to fruition. The plan was always there, but the plan becomes fully known later on. Right? What is this plan? What is this mysterious wisdom that God decreed before the ages that people kept waiting for? The death of Jesus. God has always, hear me out, God has always had the plan to send Jesus to die for our sins. This was his wisdom that's mentioned in verse 7. God has always had a plan to save you from your sins through Jesus on the cross. Always. This was not a backup plan. This was not an audible at the line of scrimmage when sin came into the world. This has always existed. This has always been the game plan. God's wisdom, God's redemptive plan was to always send Jesus for you. Now, for those in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible... They didn't see Jesus. They didn't see the cross. There was foreshadowing and clues and prophecies. But it wasn't until the New Testament when this plan went from being hidden and a secret to now becoming revealed on a grand cosmic uh, scheme. We're just a few months away from Christmas. Imagine yourself buying a gift for someone. You know what you're getting them. You, You go to the store, you buy it, you wrap it, you put it under the tree. And the person you bought it for has no idea what it is. They're unsure, but on Christmas Day, they open up the present and see what it is. That gift, even when it was wrapped, was that gift. It never changed. It was that thing the whole time, but it wasn't revealed yet. It was covered. This is the wise plan of God. God has always planned to give us Jesus, but it was wrapped up for a while. But God planned to send Jesus to save us. Why? Because God created you and I. For a purpose, to dwell with him and to worship him. And only through Jesus coming to make things right, to bridge the gap between us and God, can we actually live out what our existence, what our true wisdom is. This is the plan. This is the wise plan of God to bring a people to himself. And it was disclosed, it was wrapped up, but then boom, here comes Jesus, and now the plan is revealed. But this plan of Jesus dying on a cross, was rejected by the world. When this hidden plan became reality and was revealed, what does verse 8 say? What did the world do? The rulers of this age crucified the Lord of glory. How does the world view the wisdom of God? As foolishness. The world's wisdom is so against God that they killed the Son of God. Why? Because Jesus is not the things that the world wanted. They wanted a military champion. They wanted a successful leader to overtake Israel, a man who would allow them to remain in whatever sensual pleasures they had. But Jesus came and he said, die to yourself 
pick up a cross and follow me. And that does not sound attractive to the world. They didn't like that wisdom, so what they do? They try to shut up the wisdom of God by killing Jesus, right? For us as Christians, we look at the cross, right, as a sign of triumph, of victory, of salvation. But the cross, for the unchristian, was an attempt to get rid of Christianity. The image of the cross today even divides people. Some look at it as their refuge. Others scoff at it. How could God send his son to be killed? What man meant for evil with the cross, God meant for good. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. But what is foolish to the world is wise to Christians. Maybe at work, maybe in your family, maybe with your Neighbors, your Christian life has maybe been questioned or even maybe mocked by a non-believer. Like your priorities might look ridiculous to those in the world. People drive by churches on Sunday morning wondering, why would they get up early to go sing songs? Things just don't make sense sometimes for non-believers. Have you noticed this? The rulers of this age in the time of Jesus didn't understand it. So what they do? They killed Jesus. But the wisdom... The plan of God cannot be silenced. It was planned a long time ago, and it carries people past time. You either belong to the wisdom of God, or you belong to the wisdom of the world. You are either spiritual or natural, as verse 14 says. There is no other option, a Christian or a non-Christian. We're going to talk about this later at the end of the sermon, but I want you to think of your loved ones here. This is going to help you better understand why they do what they do. You may be appalled by them sometimes at their behavior or values. They don't think like you. You may be wondering, why do they keep pursuing that thing time and time again? They're not pursuing Christ. Look at this text. The wisdom of the cross is still hidden to them. We can't expect them to understand. They've not unwrapped the gift yet. So let this humble us a bit and not take an aggressive posture of judgment Right, You and I, where would we be if Christ didn't interrupt us? So what separates the Christian from the non-Christian, according to Paul, is what wisdom we bow down to. I just want to say to you, if you're here and you're not seeking Christ, that whatever life you seek, whatever satisfaction you seek apart from Jesus is a fruitless endeavor. I want to uh, illustrate this from a scene of Pilgrim's Progress, a story written 350 years ago. Uh, The main character, Christian, is uh, brought to a dwelling, a place called the Interpreter's House. And there he's shown a room. He walks in this room, and this room is disgusting, and it's full of dirt and dust. So dusty that you would start coughing the moment you walk into this room. So a man comes in and he grabs a broom and he just starts sweeping the room. But what happens when you just sweep a dry and dusty room? It just makes it even dustier and it gets up into your nostrils and makes it worse. And the clouds of dust rise and the coughing continues. But then a woman comes in. She brings water. 
She puts water on the floor and she grabs the broom. And then with the moisture added to that dry room, she is able to clean and purify that room. That moisture prevented the dust from getting worse. It actually cleansed the whole room. Friends, the more we pursue whatever wisdom our world offers, right? Self-satisfaction, idolatry of money, sexual satisfaction, the pursuit of corporate success, whatever it is, the more that's just like sweeping a dusty room. You might be changing the environment of the room, but you're just going to keep clouding yourself with dust and filth, and it's not actually going to solve the biggest issue that we have, and that is separation from God. It just makes a new cloud of dirt. But if we turn to the wisdom of God, that sweet water comes in and removes the clouds of dirt and offers us a new life. So you're either going to choose to be a person of of the wisdom of the world or a person of the wisdom of God. And there are only two people, wise and the unwise. So the proper question to ask right now, okay, how does a person become wise? How does one become a spiritual person? Well, Paul tackles this next. The second point, and these will be briefer than the first, Lord willing, There is one way to become a wise person. There's one way to become a wise person. And the answer is this. Through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. One way to become wise through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds very theological. The revelation of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I get it, but I want you to write it down. It's important. Look at verses 9 to 13. We're going to see this truth. Look at how often the Spirit is mentioned here. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, big word right there, revealed, to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we've not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting truth to those who are spiritual. Verse 9 begins with absolute like cosmic encouragement. It's a collection of phrases from the book of Isaiah. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, Christians, those of you who've come on the wise path of God, you can't even fathom how amazing the plan of God is for you. Your eyes have never seen anything like it. Your ears have never heard the good news like this. God loves you. And he has a plan for you. And this plan is Jesus. It's maybe not millions of dollars. Maybe not wealth and prosperity. Maybe your kid won't get into Harvard. But this plan that none of us can imagine on our own is that Jesus would save us and bring us to God and give us an abundant life, that we will have life with God. And if that excites you, wonderful. So the question is, how do I get on this plan? How do I get this wisdom of God, this future with God? Verses 10 to 13 tell us, we get them by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, You have the Holy Spirit in you, period. There is no exception to that. Verse 10 tells us that this life of wisdom has been revealed to us by the Spirit. And in verse 12, we're told that we receive the Spirit of God so that we can understand the things of God. Let me put it simply. The moment you become a Christian, 
The Holy Spirit delivers salvation and eternal life and spiritual life to you from God the Father through Jesus Christ. So think about it this way. God the Father planned before creation to save you. Jesus came into creation, died on a cross, took your sin, resurrected, did all the work, and now the Spirit is the one who comes and takes all the work of Jesus, all the planning of God the Father, and applies it to your life. He brings whatever Jesus has done, being sent by God the Father, and delivers it to you. Right? Imagine an architect. Right? He drafts plans and is mapping out a beautiful house for you knows every inch of that house. He then sends his carpenter to build that house exactly to the plans of the architect and his blood and his sweat and his tears are in that house. And then he sends the messenger who's going to bring you the keys and turn the lights on of the house and show you where you're going to live. That is the way of salvation. God the Father is the architect. Jesus is the carpenter who builds it all. And the Spirit is the one who unlocks it and helps you enjoy and receive it. So the moment you confess your sins, the moment you believe in Jesus Christ on the cross, the Spirit comes into your life, awakens your heart, opens your, un- your mind to understand God rightly, right? Before God, I was pursuing the wrong things. I thought the wrong things, had the wrong values, did the wrong things, chasing the wisdom of the world. But when the Spirit comes in, opens my eyes, and I can see clearly now, Right In verses 10 to 11, we see the Spirit, who is God, which means the Holy Spirit has always existed, knows everything, all knowledge, all wise, all understanding, and He comes into our lives to give us all the knowledge and understanding and wisdom that we need to pursue God. It's almost like the moment you become a Christian, the blinders fall off of your eyes, the scales fall off of our eyes, and we can see clearly now, think clearly, see the world of how it's supposed to be, like that old song, right? I can see clearly now, the rain is gone. Things make sense when we become Christians. This doesn't mean that Christians are any more intellectual than anybody else. This doesn't mean that Christians don't make mistakes and they don't need to learn new things. No, no, no. What this means is that in the core of our identity, we have been changed by God and our minds are now organized to think rightly. We're not perfect, but we have God himself, the Spirit, showing us the ways of God. And this is why there is no place in any church or in any Christian's life for pride. Who opened our eyes to Jesus? Not me. Not you. The Spirit. Whatever knowledge you have of God, that's the Spirit giving it to you. Any spiritual gifts or ability or encouragement, teaching ability, singing, whatever it is for the glory of God, given to you by who? The Spirit. The Spirit is the one who comes in and helps us understand the things freely given by God, opens our eyes, and then guides us in the wisdom of God for all of our lives. That's why verse 10 says reveal. The Spirit is revealed to us. We don't work for it. We don't deserve it. We don't attain the Spirit. We receive the Spirit. He is revealed to us by Jesus. So I want to think real briefly here of two things. If you're a Christian, that the Holy Spirit has done and is doing for you. As He's revealed in your life. First of all, the Holy Spirit is the one who opened the eyes of your heart to receive Jesus. We call this a big word that you should know, regeneration. Regeneration. He delivered you to Jesus, took away your sin, applied the gospel to your heart, and now all of a sudden you are a new creation in the Spirit. He changed your heart. He opened the eyes of your heart that you would receive Jesus. 
But the second thing the Spirit has done and will continue to do is the big theological word you should also understand, sanctification. We're going to understand more and more and more of the things of God the more and more we are Christian. Verse 13 mentions we are to keep learning spiritual truths. It doesn't mean religious ideas you read in a book. No, it means the Spirit is going to constantly show you more and more of who God is. So when you read the Bible and you understand something else, guess who that's from? It's from the Spirit. It's called illumination of the Spirit. He opens your eyes to see more clearly. When you know in a moment you should obey Christ, who's doing that for you? That's the Spirit convicting your conscience, leading you on the way of God. The Spirit sanctifies, grows you, opens your eyes wider and brighter. Right? He's already made the world make sense to you in Jesus, but now he does it in more detail. Right? If you've been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years, you can probably attest to this. You keep seeing more and more of the depths of God every single year. The good thing I heard a pastor say recently, the good thing about Christianity is it keeps staying interesting. The beauty of God, it doesn't get old. The Spirit keeps opening your eyes to the depths of God. That's what he does. I've heard that if you uh, went scuba diving in the Great Coral Reef Barrier, you would see colors that you've never seen before. Can you imagine that? You'd be scuba diving and you'd see a color and you'd be amazed by a color, by its freshness, by its newness. This is what the Spirit does with our lives, with Scripture, with knowledge of God. Keeps showing us more and more of it so that we can live with Him. He has all of the wisdom of God. Verse 11 says that. Spirit is God. So who better to teach us about God than God Himself? So Paul says, if you want wisdom, you bow your knee to Jesus and the Spirit gives you this freshness, this glory, this beauty. And it's way more glorious and beautiful than the ways of the world. So why, church, should we ever borrow wisdom from the world? We have the way of God. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Why do we need to be prideful or jealous or comparing? Why do we need to bring sin into the church? We don't need it here. We have the Spirit who is working. We don't need another plan. We have the plan. So that's why we never give in to the sins or philosophies of the world. Like, hey, just do you. Do what makes you happy. We should think, no, no, no. I should do what's going to please Jesus because that's what the Holy Spirit is making in me. The Spirit is conforming us to the image of God. Wisdom comes from the Spirit opening your eyes. And this finishes finally, one last point. There is one calling for the wise person. There's one calling for the wise person. To live with the mind of Christ. If you're wise, your goal every day, to live with the mind of Christ, which is seen there in verse 16. Why such a big theological lecture, Paul? You know, like, what's the point of this? Paul's showing the church at Corinth and us that we have everything we need in the spirit to live a holy life. We have the Bible that he inspired. We have him dwelling in us, showing us Jesus. 
He has formed us. We don't need to borrow any wisdom from the world or values from the world or morals from the world. We don't need to be like the city of Corinth and fight over leaders or philosophers. We don't need to say, hey, I'm a better mature Christian than you are. No, we have the same spirit doing the same work in all of us. So he opens our eyes to Jesus. So our job, our life goal is to have the mind of Christ, to think like Christ, to act like Christ, to love like Christ. Our job is to have the mind of Christ governing everything. Look just at the end here, verse 16. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The non-Christian finds the ways of Christ as foolishness. They don't make sense to him. Why? Because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit showing him Christ. But for us, we can see the world rightly. We can see God in his glory and his holiness. We can see our calling and we trust that the Spirit will equip us and empower us and give us the knowledge to do so. And you my friends, are called to live the Christian life in a world that doesn't understand Christ. This does not mean we reject the entire world and we go live like Tom Hanks on an island and we build our monasteries and we don't ever go to the world. This also doesn't mean that we do everything that the world does. We have to kind of be in the middle here, influencing the world as much as we can, but also knowing that sometimes we're going to have to escape it. Take some impressions and ideas and values from Christ to know what we're going to do. I think for us to have the mind of Christ, there's a couple intentional things that we need to do. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are equipped, you are able, whether you feel it or not. I think there's a couple things you need to do to live out the mind of Christ. First is you need to live out your obedient life publicly. You are to have the mind of Christ in a world that doesn't understand Christ. You are to live your obedient life publicly. So that means Jesus, just how they have decreed you to be saved before eternity passed, he also knows your family. He knows where you work. He knows your neighborhood. He knows your interactions you're going to have. And he has called you to have the mind of Christ wherever you work and live and play. So that means you don't, you don't, doesn't mean you walk up to someone and say, hey, I'm Troy, I'm a Christian. Like, you don't have to be awkward about it, okay? But the way that you speak, would Christ speak that way? The way that you think and you value and you desire and you delight in things, is that the way that Christ would do all of those things? Are you behaving and speaking in a way that looks like Christ? Are you looking at people with care and compassion like Christ? As you read your Bible, as you come to church, as you spend time with other Christians, guess what? The Spirit's going to impress things on you. How to, how to live a better life, how to be more merciful, how to better apply the Bible. And you take that with you to where you work and live and play. And you are not alone when you're at your neighbor's house for dinner. You are not alone at work. You have the Holy Spirit in you who says, hey, live out the mind of Christ. Live out the mind of Christ. You have God in you, right? But the second way that you can thoughtfully live out the mind of Christ in a world that doesn't understand Christ, I think, is to better pray for nonbelievers. I hope every day you're praying for people in your life who are lost. Not out of judgment or condemnation, because we know we'd be in that same position if it wasn't for Christ. But I hope that this text has brought you more into the inner workings of God and salvation. Maybe today you begin to pray this text and say, God, open the eyes of my family member. Help them be able to see the things revealed. 
Help that gift be open. Help them become wise. Start praying specifically Bible verses like this passage for those in your life who don't know Jesus. But also remember, people are saved. How? The same way you were saved, by the Spirit opening their eyes to see Jesus on the cross. So friends, you don't have to show up to work with the best argument for Christianity. Study, be prepared, that's great, yes. But what is it that saves someone? The cross of Christ delivered by the Spirit. If you keep bringing the gospel to people, guess what? The Spirit works. The Spirit wants nothing more than the spotlight being on Jesus and the cross. So maybe you have a loved one who's opposed to Jesus, organized religion. Guess what? You keep showing them Jesus with your words, with your love, with your behavior, with your example. Your individual life focused on the mind of Christ matters. But also our church's mind matters. We don't need, guess what? In this church, we don't need the best, you know, get rich schemes for people to come in here. We don't need the best speakers like Paul or Apollos. We don't need the entertainment of the world. Guess what we need? We need the gospel to shine and let the spirit do the work. So we're going to keep being founded on Jesus, found on the Bible, and we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. Open the eyes of our hearts even further to find Jesus more beautiful. That's our job. So we trust, even right now in this moment, that as we're preaching the word, the Spirit takes it into our hearts and does something with it. And maybe next week, friends, maybe next week we will come back with our eyes even brighter to the things of God for what God has done by His Holy Spirit. So we are going to go with the mind of Christ today. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your spirit that's indwelling in us. We pray if anyone right now feels the conviction that they do not have the spirit, Lord, that's from you. Pray that you will let them open their eyes as the power, as the spirit is doing that. Call people to salvation, change hearts, but also us who are saved. Let us not take for granted the spirit and the beautiful vision we have now of your son and make that even brighter this week for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.